Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our first guest is Diane Gray, and our topic is Grief Transformed. Diane Gray is the Director for Strategic Partnerships for Quality of Life Publishing and for Data LLC. Both companies are leaders in the hospice and the palliative care industry. Her professional path has been impacted by the early loss of her father and the long-term illness of her 14-year-old son, Austin, who died in February 2005. Diane's message is always one of hope and inspiration. Welcome to the show, Diane. Thank you, Heidi and Gloria. It's great to have you on the show. Now, we met Diane, actually, Heidi, through our uh, work with Eric Kippel's book. Yeah, we did, because Quality of Life Publishing is the one that published it, and so we've had a lot of contact with Diane, who is an amazing person, and I'm really excited to have her on today. Yeah, Diane. So, Diane, uh, talk a little bit about how you got into the grief and loss field. <laughs> Basically, uh, when I was growing up, I decided that I was going to be uh, in sports or medicine, and life definitely had a different path, and my father passed away when I was nine years old, died of a heart attack at age 39 suddenly, uh, right after Christmas. That was my first experience with grief uh, and with loss. Um, I don't think you know anyone can prepare you for the sudden death of your father when you're a child. Um, so I took those life lessons and continued and thought, okay, fine, I'll graduate from college and have kids, get married, all of those thoughts that we have. And as I got married, um, we had a young child. We had a little boy. And after a couple of years, he was diagnosed with a rare degenerative brain disease, um, one in a million. Wow. And Austin looked like any other blonde-haired, green-eyed little boy who was chasing trucks and cats and dogs and running in the yard. I had these plans, I think, like a lot of your listeners do, that didn't include anything that had to do with grief and loss. Mm-hmm. So, it had to so do Diane, with having a family. Yes. For a minute. How, how old was he when he was diagnosed, and how did you know? Austin uh, fell down um, mm-hmm. 30, 40 times a day. Um, not a taxic, meaning he wouldn't just drop. It's when he was walking. We could see that it looked as though he just didn't see what was underneath his feet, and that was literally the case. We took him to uh, a series of physicians. Our pediatrician told us to get him out of his kids because he was just, you know, it was the shoes, mm-hmm. and I was an overreactive first-time mommy. Right. Subsequent doctor visits over the years, uh, revealed that Austin had a one-in-a-million brain disease uh, that was diagnosed by a neurologist from France who did a one-day visit in Miami, Florida at Miami Children's Hospital, took a look at the MRI and said, see, right here, it's the eye of the tiger. Your son has Hallervord and Spatz syndrome, or another word for it now is neurodegenerative brain iron accumulation disorder. And he's going to die in a few years. Oh, my goodness. How old uh, was he when you received that news? Four turning five. Oh, it, it was Christmas Eve. Oh, my goodness. Uh-huh. And he just kind of delivered it out of hand, or was he sensitive to it? I think he was He was the modern father of pediatric neurology, Dr. Jean Ecardi. 
and he was wonderful. But no matter how kind and compassionate the physician, the bottom line is, is here is your diagnosis. I'm really sorry that you have to drive all the way back across Alligator Alley for two hours to your home. I wish I could spare you this news, but the black and white and the MRI, this is what the diagnosis is. Oh, my goodness. What a, what a thing. Now, did you have any other children then? Um, ironically, through the diagnostic process, they kept telling us, oh, it's no big deal. He needs glasses. I got pregnant. And I had also miscarried in that process. But prior to my son's diagnosis with this degenerative disease, I had become pregnant. And on the day of my the start of my 20th week of pregnancy, which was for me the safe zone that right. I was going mm-hmm. to maintain my pregnancy, my son received this diagnosis with a genetic disease. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. And, and you carried the baby to term? And mm-hmm. Everything was well. Because that would be kind of scary in the whole, the whole having that kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. Terrifying because she also could have been a carrier for the same disease. Oh, wow. And, it, and, and so you were pins and needles after she was born, too. Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, there wasn't a diagnostic test at the time, but by the time she was, I think it was two or three years old, uh, a diagnostic test, a genetic test, was ready, and of course, you know, she was tested, and she's a carrier, just as I am, mm-hmm. but she does not have the disease, but through that process, that was a concern for her. She asked in her two- and three-year-old language, Mommy, do I, will I get sick? Mommy, do I have this? How much of this do I have in my body? Because she saw her older brother, who was four years older than she was, getting sicker. Now, did he have? Um, was it, did it affect his intelligence, or was it just the neuromuscular? Just neuromuscular, oh. which is the curse and the blessing. And I think, as well as it would relate to your listeners, uh, as is grief. Uh, grief is both, I think, curse and blessing. And I think it's the balance. Um, Austin's disease attacked the basal ganglia, which attacked as well his neuromuscular, his ability to move and function as a normal little boy, but it took it so slowly one month at a time. He lost the ability to, say, move an arm or move a leg six months later, so it was very slow, but he still wanted to watch Magic School Bus or Hercules or, you know, Mighty Joe Young or, you know, whatever else what he wanted to watch or eat, Uh, but slowly... As Lawson got older, uh, when he was eight in the fourth grade, stopped going to school. When he was 11, he was in uh, acute critical pain, chronic, terrible pain. And we became in-home hospice patients. One of the things that you triggered for me and I know for our audience out there is the fact that you are carrying the gene for the uh, disease that your son Austin died of at age 14. Mm-hmm. And how, how have you dealt with that? And what would you suggest to our audience out there who have had children die or family members and they do, they are carrying the gene? I mean, is there guilt involved? I'm assuming that. So I don't know. Uh, I think at first, and this is where um, to be... Completely honest with you, I my son was in his wheelchair probably when he was somewhere around 10, 11 years old, and he I could tell that his days of talking were just about coming to an end. He was still at the eh and oh, meaning yes and no stage. And I just sobbed and said, told him, I am so sorry for doing this. But I think, too, in that process, doing this meaning having a body that created a child with a gene, 
that would ultimately kill him. A recessive genetics means I have one copy of the gene, my ex-husband had another copy of the gene, and unfortunately no one walks around with a billboard that says, gee, I have a, a defective gene that if I meet 99 other people, and I could not have created this child. Well, that's the other part. I mean, it was you, you're in great shape, you take great care of yourself, and it's one in a million yeah. that you're going to get a child like this, and how, how would we ever know that the person we fall in love with happens to be not compatible in some way as it, far as... Exactly, Heidi. You are spot on. And it's through, it was through that grieving process and through truly sobbing on that one day, and then all of a sudden, okay, it's not rocket science. AA, BB, AA, simple genetics. Mm-hmm. It was a roll of the dice. But with that said, and I think some of your listeners could probably relate to this, that same genetic code gives us the opportunity to realize, you know what, no one does this on purpose. This, just, this was one of those things, just like we were all genetically predisposed, blue hair, you know, blue hair, blue eyes, blonde hair, brown eyes, brown hair. It is one of those things that happened. And that took that guilt away for it from my situation and instead I said okay this is what we have now let let's work hard and live well and love well and we I moved love that, that. Well, you know when I was carrying Alexander mm-hmm. my son I found, we found out that my husband and my blood types were incompatible and I had got a shot now they have a shot nowadays they can give you when your blood types are incompatible way back when I would probably have lost baby. Or they would have had to change his blood at birth, which caused a lot of issues. Right. I I love that you're able to, you were able to kind of make peace with this, it sounds like. That's absolutely right. And I think as part of the grief process, and boy, is it a process, as you know, has been making peace, or as I say, making nice. I made nice with things that caused great angst and made peace eventually and have been able to move forward, you know, as the weeks and months and years have passed. Now, I wanted to say one thing for our audience because we kind of left him hanging uh, before break. Uh, your daughter, Christina, um, was tested and she does not. She has the recessive gene for it, like Correct. you do, but she doesn't have the, have the disease. So I just wanted to um, say that. But also I wanted to say now you took care of him for years as he became more and more disabled. I know there are people out in our audience who have husbands who have Alzheimer's, who have, you know, children who have had this. What about the caregiver? And I know you're very involved with hospice now. How, how do, I know when this person dies, you lose a job in essence. Everything. Complete loss of identity. Um, through this process as well, I lost my marriage, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners go through as well. Uh, lost marriage, lost home environment, lost, lost, lost. So, what happened was loss of identity. Completely, if you can imagine an onion, you're just stripped down to your core. But the fabulous thing about being stripped down to your core is that you have a unique opportunity in life to rebuild a new and amazing life that would have been by far better than what I imagined at 28 years old, picking out wallpaper and paint colors for a house. You know, I can't even fathom being that woman any longer. Because you're so much deeper than that person, it sounds like. Uh, absolutely. I think the potential is there for all of us yeah. to, to make choices and, and to allow ourselves to be shaped by events, both wonderful and horrible. 
Uh, and I think it's a choice. Okay, now, Diane, tell me, how did you feel right after he died? And for uh, how long did it take? Uh, your attitude now after, what, four years? Mm-hmm. Is amazing. Tell us about the process for those people who are just beginning. Uh, completely lost at first. What do you do? When you're a caregiver, you wake up in the morning, and the first thing you do is go in the room. If you're not already asleep, I can't tell you how many nights I slept on the floor. I mean, a lot of caregivers are just like that. Mm-hmm. You sleep on the floor, and I had one hand up on the bed, on Austin's bed, so I could hold his hand because he was in a hospital bed the last five years. He was on morphine, methadone, an extraordinary amount of medications because of neuromuscular disease with the pain process. But as soon as Austin died, my world was upside down. I didn't know how to parent the same or be the same friend. I didn't know how to be the same family member. Um, Complete loss of identity. And that has been a slow, evolving process that and some of your caregivers and and listeners can relate to as well. Total, Total loss of... Ooh, who am I anymore if I'm not that? Do you remember if there was a turning point for you? I remember there were a few turning points, Gloria, and I think if I could share one thing is that um, I play sports. So for me, I like to run, hike, bike. You start, you do it, you go. This life lesson has been the opposite of that. This has been slow down, Diane. This This is going to be a slow process. The turning points were... The first week, I came home from the movies one night uh, with my friends who were wonderful, great support network of friends. And when I came home, there were no lights on in the house. I burst into tears. Burst into tears. It was too quiet. There, were, People stopped coming by. That was a turning point, as in, okay, let's get ready for new life. Mm-hmm. A couple months later... Back so you school. felt, okay, I'm ready for a new life. Is that what, what you were saying to yourself, you said? It, no, I wouldn't say okay. I would okay. say, you, okay, Diane, you better straighten up, girly, because... The old life's over. The lights are out. That's right. Exactly. Okay. The lights are on. Get up. Put your boots on. And you have no choice other than to wake up. Another turning point, Gloria, was the holidays. And I think with people who are going through the grief process, holidays are the worst and at times the best. Um... For me, I was sitting, I'll never forget it, going to my mother's house on Christmas night. Uh, I'm at a traffic light, turning left to go to their house. There was a horrible car accident in front of me. And anyone who's gone through grief and loss knows that Christmas is about family and there's somebody missing. The woman in front of me died. And I remember sitting there saying, oh, God, you got the wrong person. I, you took her, not me. I just, this is terrible. Why? I don't get it. But now, Gloria and Heidi, I can tell you after four years and lots of little transitions, I'm getting it. There's work to be done. And tell us what you're doing. Oh, it's been such an extraordinary process of little steps. Um, I currently work for a publishing company. We focus on grief and bereavement. And I didn't Quality of Life Books, which published our Eric Kippel book. Yes, which has been a wonderful experience to work with all of you. Um, I represent the book division. We publish books on grief and bereavement. And I guess what I would like to share with your listeners is this. I did not seek this out. These opportunities, they crossed my path. The only thing that I did that maybe some other people don't is I said yes. 
and I keep saying yes to life and to opportunities and to doors opening. And if they don't feel right, I say no. But I try to say yes to meeting new people and building bridges and seeing what's around the next corner. And things in the last year or two have become, uh, it's quite amazing who might walk around the corner and come to our booth at a conference. You know, you meet someone and you say, oh, my gosh, very interesting. So it's the yeses. And I think that's the common denominator that is possible for all of us as grieving individuals is that opportunity to say yes again even when your heart hurts to the very center and core of your being. Mm-hmm. That's a, a wonderful thought. Now you now you just uh, finished uh, some uh, book chapters with some doctors? Yes, it's incredible. Um, I joined, uh, I was asked to participate on the board of a California nonprofit that focuses on pediatric palliative care. Uh, growing and what up is in, the name of that? It's Children's Hospice and Pediatric um, Care Coalition. And what it does is it focuses on legislative issues and as well basic everyday needs like paying the light bill. Lots mm-hmm. of families that are, suffer uh, with a pediatric palliative care or hospice end-of-life situation in their home. Well, we're, we're trying to pay the car payment and keep the lights on. This group, besides legislation and waiver issues, also focuses on very everyday issues. I also sit on uh, some national work groups and some boards that focus as well on pediatric palliative care just because, my gosh, if I can't use five years of gut-wrenching hospice experience to maybe make one other child's life a little bit better, then why go, it's such a crying shame. So back to your original question, someone asked me if I would um, represent parents in co-authoring three chapters in a revised edition of a pediatric palliative care textbook that's being um, edited by Johns Hopkins Press. That's wonderful. Well, Diane, it's it's been so great having you on the show, and it's so great to know you. Have you got one piece of advice that you could leave for our audience out there who are going through this process of grief and loss? It gets better. I promise. I promise that every day gets a little bit, maybe not better, but even on your worst day, maybe the next day will be better. And for someone who really thought that it was going to just, it would take the standard year, the first year I was, I thought I was doing fine. <laughs> and I realized I was in a daze. So the second year really hurt. But it does now by year four, by staying open to meeting some amazing individuals, life can take unexpected turns that I never would have anticipated in a million years. Well, Diane, Diane, thank you so much for being on for Grief Transformed. You've certainly transformed it, hasn't she, Heidi? She has, and I was going to say one more thing that I really took from this today is you've said yes to life. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.